It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder and medical malpractice that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In an ideal world, imprisonment offers a chance for rehabilitation. Many believe that by facing the imposed consequences of their actions, criminals can reflect, change, and learn from their mistakes. But in some cases, like that of serial poisoner Dr. Michael Swongo, incarceration is nothing more than a minor setback. Using jail time to rest and re-strategize, impenitent people bide their time with the aim of striking again. Behind bars, Dr. Swongo relished in his guiltless thoughts. After his crimes were discovered in the US, Swongo revealed his true devotion to evil when he traveled overseas to kill again. Now, he serves as a cautionary reminder that sometimes the only thing correctional facilities correct is a criminal's approach to avoiding detection. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair by offering some medical insight into our last installment of the case of Michael Swango, a smart, charismatic, and very dangerous doctor. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. Michael Swongo, the charismatic physician with a compulsion for poison. A proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing, Michael acted the part of a caring medical provider throughout the 1980s and 90s, only to take advantage of his vulnerable patients. Though it's difficult to prove, he's believed to be responsible for well over three dozen murders, with some estimates rising as high as 60. Last time, we discussed Michael's promising youth, along with his morbid interest in violence and his nefarious behavior in medical school. After the non-fatal poisoning of co-workers in the mid-80s, Michael was finally imprisoned. Today, we'll explore Michael's efforts to return to medicine, his worldwide hunt for victims, and the FBI's race against the clock to prove his guilt. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. The Nene Mission Hospital was a humble but vital medical outpost dedicated to serving the rural communities of Zimbabwe in southern Africa. Underfunded and desperate for caregivers, it relied on the hard work and dedication of its humanitarian staff. And in 1995, it needed help more than ever. A wave of unforeseen deaths had swept through the facility. The hospital's director, 
Dr. Christopher Sashiri was at a loss. It seemed like every other day brought a new tragedy. Dr. Zashiri's spirits only sank further on the morning of July 17, 1995, when he got word that one of the nurses had fallen ill. He prayed it was a mild ailment, but after discussing her symptoms with his newly hired physician from America, it was decided that the nurse should be admitted as a patient. The doctor placed in charge of her well-being, 40-year-old Dr. Michael Swango. Just a few hours later, Michael told Dr. Zashiri that the young nurse had died. Speechless, the hospital director's eyes welled up with sadness. Michael offered a comforting hand, seeming equally gutted. But it was all a convincing performance. Though Michael appeared to share Dr. Zashiri's grief, under the surface, he celebrated the rush of what was likely his latest kill. Despite the authorities' best efforts, he'd infiltrated another hospital undetected. After years of eluding murder charges, Michael Swango was finally convicted in 1985. But not for murder. There hadn't been enough evidence against him. Charged with the lesser crime of aggravated battery for the non-fatal poisoning of his co-workers, Michael wasn't dealt a hand that most murderers can expect. He ended up serving less than half of his five-year sentence on account of good behavior. The serial killer, who had been linked to over half a dozen murders during his medical career, was released back into the world in August 1987. Despite the whispers of his misconduct at every institution he'd worked at, Michael eagerly prepared to infiltrate yet another. However, with his new criminal record, he quickly realized this wouldn't be so easy. As his first order of business, 32-year-old Michael left his home state of Illinois. Local hospitals were all too aware of his reputation, and he needed to start over. So Michael relocated nearly a thousand miles away to the coastal city of Hampton, Virginia. He applied for a local medical license, but securing it was a gamble due to his past felony conviction. While felony convictions don't automatically disqualify a prospective physician from employment, the nature and extent of the crimes have to be carefully considered. In the U.S., the status of a doctor's license is determined by their state's medical board, which has the power to impose disciplinary sanctions on their practice. Depending on the severity and context of their misconduct, medical boards can restrict, suspend, or permanently revoke a medical license. If a doctor engages in criminal behavior like Swango, law enforcement becomes involved and the state's medical board then decides upon appropriate sentencing in relation to licensing restrictions. It might even be that certain criminal convictions are found to be innocuous by the medical board in terms of a doctor's professional competency, and this may result in minimal or zero sanctioning. For a doctor with a felonious record trying to find work, it can be really challenging because hospitals and healthcare settings require criminal background checks for job applicants. Although past run-ins with the law can be a bias marker when hiring, medical institutions generally don't want to gamble their own reputations or patient and staff safety on applicants they view as questionable. Whatever the case, honesty is crucial, and the surprise discovery of a doctor's criminal history later on could have terrible consequences for all involved. However, in Michael's perspective, honesty only served to his detriment. His application for a medical license was rejected due to his prior felony conviction. Disgruntled, Michael began work as a counselor, helping students prepare for medical school. And though Michael had moved across the country to start a new life, it appears that he quickly reverted to his old habits. Soon after he started, three of his new co-workers fell ill, beset with sudden nausea, vomiting, and painful headaches. Their symptoms were eerily similar to those of the paramedics Michael was convicted of poisoning a few years earlier. 
No one accused Michael directly, but his concerning behavior at the career center certainly turned heads. His obsession with gruesome accidents was widely known, and his longtime hobby of scrapbooking morbid imagery left many of his colleagues deeply unsettled. Before long, the police were notified about the mysterious illnesses plaguing the career center. An investigation quickly dug up Michael's past, prompting him to quit in May of 1989. This apparently let him avoid further scrutiny and criminal charges. Though one of his co-workers ended up in the hospital, Michael was fortunately ousted before anyone else lost their lives. Now out of a job, Michael Swango confronted the heavy realization that his past would not be so easy to escape. It wasn't enough to change cities. He needed a whole new identity. So, in January 1990, 35-year-old Michael legally changed his name to David Jackson Adams. As he transitioned to his new name, he spent some time working as both a lab technician and part-time paramedic before applying for a doctor position in Wheeling, West Virginia in May 1991. To his dismay, Michael was forced to use his original name on the application as his new identity did not match his med school records. Anticipating they would discover his felony, Michael was upfront about his arrest. However, he claimed that his early battery charge was for a fight, not multiple counts of poisoning. He even wrote fake prison documents to reinforce his new version of the story. Then, Michael forged a letter from the governor of Virginia recommending his reinstatement and restoring all of his civil rights. These forgeries alone were punishable as felonies, Michael was pulling out all the stops to weasel his way back inside a hospital. When his documents were eventually revealed to be counterfeit, Michael was once again rejected. Neither the authorities nor any other medical institutions appear to have been notified. Michael's forgeries weren't only dubious, they were criminal. Naturally, hospitals and universities may fail to report certain suspicious behaviors to fellow institutions. However, they're required to adhere to certain protocols when confronted with blatant misconduct or criminal behavior like Michael's. For incoming doctors in training, the Association of American Medical Colleges acts as a safeguard for these care settings. For example, if a prospective doctor gets caught lying on their residency application, the AAMC has a responsibility to notify their current institution and all others they've applied to. This correspondence also applies to applicants with disciplinary citations, criminal histories, and other issues deemed potentially problematic for medical field work. If offending applicants are fully licensed, healthcare organizations themselves need to report these doctors to their state medical boards or authorities. As we've mentioned, Michael's document forging was illegal, and it should have been reported to the police rather than dismissed. Despite the importance of following this policy, some institutions may choose to simply ignore felonious behavior rather than bring it to light. However, the failure to expose it may have serious repercussions down the road. Once again free from any consequence, Michael Swango continued his job search. By the summer of 1991, 36-year-old Michael had been out of medicine for nearly seven years. He generated income from the short-lived positions he could find, but none offered him access to potential victims. In an effort to get back to the medical setting, Michael enrolled in an advanced life support course at the local hospital in Hampton, Virginia. There, he met a beautiful 25-year-old nurse named Kristen Kinney. Michael was quickly enamored by Kristen's affable personality. He didn't care that she already had a boyfriend. If anything, her unavailability made him want her even more. Employing his signature charm, Michael showered Kristen with affection and kindness, two things her boyfriend often ignored. By the end of the summer, 
Michael convinced Kristen to break off her old relationship and date him. That fall, Kristen unknowingly found herself in the arms of a murderer. Unaware of Michael's past, Kristen fully supported his quest to find work as a doctor. Though his previous efforts had come up empty, he continued applying to various residencies across the country, including the University of South Dakota. In September 1991, 36-year-old Michael's application landed on Dr. Anthony Salem's desk. As director of the university's internal medicine residency, he wasn't sure what to think. Dr. Salem had lost count of how many dull resumes he'd read and quickly forgotten. But Michael's stuck out like a sore thumb, mostly because he openly admitted to being a felon. When Dr. Salem contacted him for details about the incident, Michael effortlessly embellished details to garner sympathy. He insisted he had fallen victim to a miscarriage of justice from vindictive co-workers. Intrigued by his candidness, Dr. Salem invited Michael for a round of personal interviews. A seasoned manipulator, Michael thrived in face-to-face -face interactions. Through half-truths and vague details, he constructed an intricate web of lies. Dr. Salem believed every word. After years of waiting in the shadows, Michael felt his resurgence on the horizon. Sure enough, on March 18, 1992, he was accepted to a residency position at the University of South Dakota. Finally, Michael Swango was ready for his second act. Coming up, Michael resumes his murderous career. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters, it's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In spring 1992, 37-year-old Michael Swango was finally accepted to a medical residency at the University of South Dakota despite his criminal past. By June, he and his then-fiancée, nurse Kristen Kinney, had moved from Hampton, Virginia to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Michael's first few months in South Dakota were rather uneventful. Perhaps wanting to lay low and get a feel for his new work, Michael was a model physician. The hospital staff enjoyed his company, and for the first time in years, he kept his grisly scrapbooking a secret. By all accounts, Michael was on his best behavior. Four months into his employment, however, Michael made a mistake. In October 1992, 38-year-old Michael applied to join the American Medical Association. He likely hoped to gain their expert consultancy on contract terms, licensing, and certification, in addition to some of the financial benefits. Unfortunately for Michael, the AMA wasn't as forgiving of Michael's past as Dr. Salem had been. 
Michael knew he was taking a risk in using his real name on the application while revealing that he worked at a hospital. But he didn't consider how quickly the word of his criminal history would spread. Though Michael withdrew his applications after the AMA questioned his past, it was too late. The official in charge of his file had already mentioned his name to a co-worker who happened to know the dean at the University of South Dakota Medical Center. A few phone calls later, Michael's skeletons were out of the closet. By late November, Dr. Salem had learned the truth about Michael's past, and he moved quickly to get him out the door. In an effort to avoid further drama, the university suspended Michael and gave him until December 4, 1992, to quietly submit his resignation. Otherwise, he would be forced out. While Michael attempted to appeal his dismissal, he wouldn't get another chance to work in the university's hospital system. He couldn't salvage his relationships with former co-workers who were rightfully horrified, but now he faced the task of preserving his relationship with Kristen Kinney. Kristen struggled to come to terms with the idea that Michael was the monster everyone suddenly claimed. In her eyes, he was a kind and honest man who had been unjustly accused. So when Michael downplayed his past, Kristen chose to believe him. But Michael would soon reveal his true colors. In the weeks that followed, he became increasingly distant and their relationship suffered. Whenever she asked about his felonies, he became enraged and even threatened to leave her on multiple occasions. Slowly, Kristen's confidence in Michael's innocence waned. Worse, she began feeling ill almost every day. It seemed like the more her doubts rose about Michael, the more her health declined. Blaming stress, she fought through headaches and nausea. Though the more likely cause was the convicted poisoner sharing her bed. While we don't know for sure, authorities suspect 38-year-old Michael began to poison 27-year-old Kristen in early 1993. Her condition steadily worsened for months and didn't improve until she returned home to see her parents in Virginia in April of that year. Notably, Kristen's health rapidly improved once she was no longer near Michael. The distance also gave Kristen a chance to reflect on her relationship. She ultimately decided it would be best to move on. Her parents agreed. They thought Michael was to blame for Kristen's recent hardships. So when Michael showed up on their doorstep a few weeks after Kristen's arrival, the Kinneys were displeased, to say the least. By April 1993, Michael presumably had little interest in his relationship with Kristen. But without a job and with very few prospects on the horizon, he did need a place to sleep. With relative ease, the veteran manipulator talked his way back into her life. Michael proceeded to leech off of Kristen while applying to more hospitals around the country. As she supported them both, he loafed around her East Coast apartment, refusing to pitch in for expenses. Eventually, he landed an interview at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Michael successfully lied his way through yet another application process, and on June 1, 1993, he was accepted into the university's psychiatric residency program. Though he had never previously worked in psychiatry, Michael was willing to do whatever it took to get near vulnerable patients. Perhaps anticipating another short tenure at his new hospital, Michael Swango wasted no time. On July 1st, 1993, he saw an elderly patient named Dominic Buffalino who was recovering from a minor lung infection. Considering his age, it was cause for concern, but Mr. Buffalino was in stable condition and on track to a full recovery. 
That was, until Michael got his hands on him. With no witnesses, it's impossible to know exactly what occurred. But by the morning of July 2nd, 1993, Dominic Buffalino was dead. Dismissed as an unfortunate turn for the worse, no investigation was conducted. For the first time in nearly eight years, it seems Michael was able to feel the familiar rush of murder. While it may have satiated an old hunger, it did little for his relationship with Kristen, who had stayed in Virginia. According to one of Kristen's neighbors, the two had begun fighting. It's unclear how this impacted Michael, but Kristen had grown tired and her mental health had reportedly deteriorated. About two weeks after Michael moved to New York, 27-year-old Kristen Kinney suddenly died by suicide. Because Michael was in New York at the time of her death, he was never a suspect. In notes she left behind, Kristen was clear she didn't blame Michael for her troubles, but that was possibly because of how deeply he had manipulated her. Unfazed by the tragedy, Michael continued on with his life and his suspected killing spree. And the longer he was in New York, the less he cared about being subtle. In September 1993, just three months into his residency program, Michael was placed in charge of a 60-year-old pneumonia patient named Baron Harris. Mr. Harris's visit was more out of caution than emergency, but like many of Michael's patients, once he entered the hospital, his health drastically declined. Several days after his admittance to the hospital, Mr. Harris's wife, Elsie, came by for a visit. She was shocked to see that her husband had been tied to his bed. The only explanation Michael gave was that Mr. Harris had become agitated and needed to be restrained. Such a precaution seemed wholly unnecessary. Elsie struggled to believe her husband was capable of such aggression. Regardless, she deferred to Dr. Swango's judgment. On her next visit, she caught Michael injecting an enormous syringe into Mr. Harris's neck. He had closed the blinds, blanketing the room in darkness, and seemed startled when she arrived. When Elsie asked what was in the syringe, Michael quickly told her he was giving Mr. Harris vitamins before scuttling out of the room. Though Elsie was no doctor, her instincts told her something was wrong. Her mistrust was appropriate, Alistair. Neither vitamins nor other medications are administered via neck injections, so this was fishy off the bat. Vitamins are normally given orally, intravenously, or through a nasogastric tube, which runs down the nose, through the esophagus, and into the stomach. To help patients replenish vitamin deficiencies, it's typically most efficient to hook multivitamin IV bags to veins in their arms. This is because the arm has a prominent vein network, doesn't contain vital anatomy, and is easily accessible to medical staff. A couple examples of multivitamin and nutrient solutions used in hospitals are referred to as banana bags and Myers cocktails. They contain ingredients like thiamine, riboflavin, vitamin C, folic acid, and a variety of other vitamins and minerals. Vitamins would have been a fitting part of Mr. Harris's pneumonia treatment, but Michael's secrecy and delivery methods were suspicious. Whatever he was actually injecting into Mr. Harris, he must have chosen the neck because he wanted the medication to immediately go to the brain. Not only is the neck anatomically close to the brain, it also houses large blood vessels that run through it, like the carotid arteries and jugular veins. Elsie Harris shared her concerns with a nurse later that evening, citing the peculiar scene she had interrupted. The nurse thought Mrs. Harris must have been mistaken, Doctors didn't administer injections, only nurses did. Mrs. Harris's concerns were far from settled. She had seen Michael with her own eyes. Still, she had no way of convincing the nurse. Just a few days later, 
In early October 1993, Elsie Harris learned her husband had fallen into a coma. Shocked, she couldn't comprehend how his health could have declined so quickly. Her husband's doctor, Michael Swango, provided no relief. According to Mrs. Harris, Michael made a rather bizarre remark. He said he hoped he hadn't done anything to cause her husband's coma. Then, he frigidly declared that Mr. Harris's coma had caused irreparable brain damage and his prognosis was likely terminal. A coma is a long period of unconsciousness that can result from a number of medical issues, like a stroke, traumatic head injury, a brain tumor, or a severe infection. Doctors normally determine the status of a coma by examining the underlying cause, along with the patient's clinical progression. For the most part, coma patients gradually show improvement in their responsiveness to stimulation, and this process can take anywhere from a few days to even years. Terminal comas are marked contextually by physicians observing patients who demonstrate zero to little recovery within an expected time frame. Their ongoing clinical state is characterized by abnormal brainstem and verbal responses and a lack of response to painful stimuli. Our brainstems are specifically in control of our body's automatic functioning, like heartbeat, respiration, reflex movements, and our pupillary light reflex. Lack of pupil constriction under bright light is actually an example of an abnormal brainstem response that doctors regularly check when assessing comatose patients. Mr. Harris's pneumonia definitely put him at a higher risk of falling into a coma, but this would ultimately depend on the severity of his infection. Comas can be very serious, and their unpredictable nature often places a great deal of stress on surviving family members. Worsening Elsie's stress, Michael continually insisted her husband would never wake up. He recommended that Mrs. Harris sign a do-not-resuscitate order, preventing any healthcare providers from performing life-saving cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, in the case of an emergency. As the hope vanished from Elsie's eyes, Michael watched with delight. Just over a month later, Baron Harris passed away. Like Dr. Swango promised, he never awoke from the coma. And he wasn't alone. According to James B. Stewart, author of Blind Eye, the terrifying story of a doctor who got away with murder, between July and October of 1993, Dr. Michael Swango can be linked to at least five patient deaths at Stony Brook affiliated hospitals. But luckily, he could never escape his past for long. When one of Kristen Kinney's friends from South Dakota learned that he was practicing medicine in New York, she contacted her superiors, who were now fully aware of Michael's past. They, in turn, contacted Stony Brook. Appalled, the hospital suspended his license on October 20th, 1993. Then, Stony Brook University staffers contacted every med school dean in the country to warn them about Michael Swango. By November of 1993, he was blacklisted. The news had even made its way to the FBI. Stories emerged of the forged documents Michael used on his application, along with the many alleged murders shrouding his name. Unable to hide his past any longer, Michael Swango was officially under the careful watch of America's top intelligence and security agency. Up next, Michael evades the FBI. Now, back to the story. After years of evading detection, 39-year-old serial killer Michael Swango finally had a target on his back. And by 1994, authorities had him in their crosshairs. For weeks, the FBI monitored Michael from a distance, waiting for him to slip up and reveal hard evidence. In February 1994, Michael resurfaced near Atlanta. Using the alias Jack Kirk, he landed a job at a wastewater treatment facility, 
When the FBI found out a convicted prisoner had access to an entire city's water supply, they were forced to play their hand. They warned Michael's employer of his true identity, and he was quickly terminated. Suspicious he was being watched, Michael fled Georgia. He slipped out of the city undetected, vanishing like a ghost. Realizing their suspect had run and having barely avoided a potential catastrophe, the FBI decided to pursue an arrest as soon as possible. Over the next few months, investigators dug into Michael's history. Despite plenty of rumors, there was an infuriating lack of hard evidence. It would be nearly impossible to charge him, and the authorities feared they were running out of time before Michael's next attack. Desperate to get him off the streets, they resolved to charge him with a lesser crime. According to the government, he had defrauded a federal facility when he was accepted into the residency program at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, thereby giving him access to the Veterans Affairs Hospital. It was far from what the serial killer deserved, but given the stakes, the FBI took what they could get. On October 27, 1994, they issued a warrant. Michael Swongo was officially a fugitive. With the FBI on his tail, finding a hospital position anywhere in the United States seemed unlikely. So, the murderous doctor packed his bags, intent on continuing his career of calamity somewhere far from the FBI's jurisdiction. In November 1994, 40-year-old Michael fled to Zimbabwe in Southern Africa. At the time, there wasn't an extradition treaty between the US and Zimbabwe, so as long as he stayed under the radar, he'd be virtually untouchable. Flaunting his American education, the doctor landed a position at a rural hospital in Nene with relative ease. Isolated and in desperate need of caregivers, the remote medical facility welcomed Michael's supposed expertise. His credentials immediately placed him among the staff's most experienced physicians. So when colleagues and patients began to witness his strange behavior, they weren't sure what to think. Late one night in mid-1995, Michael awoke a patient named Kenius Muzazewa to administer an injection. Fearful, Kenius didn't fight back, but he did watch as Michael accidentally dropped the cap of his syringe on the ground. Though Kenius had no way of knowing what medicine the doctor had administered, he resolved to report it. Unfortunately, it would be a while before Kenius could speak as Michael's injection had left him temporarily paralyzed. Certain drugs prevent a nerve impulse from triggering a muscle contraction, and they're commonly referred to as neuromuscular blocking agents. They're used during surgery while a patient's under anesthesia in order to help with endotracheal intubation. Essentially, the medication paralyzes the throat and vocal cords, allowing the tube to be inserted more easily through the mouth and into the trachea in order to help the patient breathe with a ventilator. It also makes operating easier for the surgeon because it relaxes the patient's skeletal muscles. Neuromuscular blockers are categorized as either depolarizing or non-depolarizing, and the decision to use one or the other during an operation depends on a patient's specific health issues and the type of surgery being performed. Once a neuromuscular blocker kicks in, it can last anywhere from seven minutes to a few hours, depending on which specific medication is used. There's no reason for Michael to administer this sort of medicine to Kenius, and it surely could have killed him, as it renders people unable to breathe on their own. Even a normal dose of the shortest-acting neuromuscular blocker lasts too long for someone to survive without oxygen, which makes it likely that there were other drugs involved here. It's possible that Michael added some sort of stimulant to his injection to induce a competing sympathetic nervous system response. 
This would have counteracted the effect of the neuromuscular blocker and its effect on the parasympathetic nervous system. Whatever happened, Kenius luckily regained feeling and normal functioning. After he recovered, Kenius told the nurses that Dr. Michael Swongo had given him an injection that induced his paralytic state. He even presented the dropped syringe cap to the nurses, backing up his allegations. Along with the wave of mysterious deaths, the evidence was troubling, but circumstantial at best. The nurses kept quiet, in fear that any doctor they reported their suspicions to would side with Michael Swongo. But the longer they waited, the more people perished, and the brasher Michael Swongo grew. Beginning in May 1995, the modest hospital experienced a series of unexplained deaths unlike anything they had ever seen. Michael never offered more than weak explanations for the deaths of his patients and appeared unfazed by their passing. His cold-hearted disposition was disturbing, and the nursing staff quietly suspected foul play. But it wasn't until after Michael's supervisor, Dr. Christopher Zashiri, lost a member of his own nursing staff that he called an emergency meeting. Perhaps intentionally, Michael was absent from the meeting, and the staff took the chance to confess their fears. Horrified, Dr. Zashiri sank into his chair. Even if just half of his staff's claims were true, there was a good chance they had a serial killer on their hands. Dr. Zashiri quickly contacted the police. When they searched Michael's residence, they found a vast array of medical equipment. In addition, hundreds of medication containers littered the house. Dozens were open. There was no telling how many had been used on patients. The narcotics found included adrenaline, ephedrine, Valium, xylocaine, and nupacanal. All were common, but can carry fatal consequences if misused. Heightening their suspicions? Michael Swongo's sudden disappearance. 41-year-old Michael left Menene around October 1995 and made his way over 100 miles west to the city of Bulawayo. He found employment at another hospital, one unaware of the details of the ongoing investigation at Menene or the overseas investigation of the FBI. Over the next five months, Michael is thought to have claimed around 15 more lives. By January 1996, rumors once again caught up to Michael, and he was eventually fired. During this time, Michael learned that his investigation had been taken over by the Zimbabwean government. Because he was American, there were political implications to his crimes. Dr. Michael Swango's behavior had tarnished the reputation of two critically important medical institutions, and many patients began to seek alternative remedies rather than risk their lives in the hospital. By this point, Michael Swango had been linked to almost two dozen murders throughout Zimbabwe. But like the FBI, the Zimbabwean authorities had nothing to go on besides hearsay and rumors. Eventually, they decided that they needed Michael's side of the story. In August 1996, he agreed to come in for questioning. Unsurprisingly, Michael never showed. The details of Michael Swango's remaining time in Africa are thin. We do know he made his way north, working in a hospital in Zambia for two months before being fired in November of 1996. Sometime after that, he resurfaced in Johannesburg, South Africa, where he employed the services of a medical placement firm to try and secure another job. Remarkably, the company found him a position at a hospital in Saudi Arabia. For the second time in two years, Michael planned to relocate to a new continent to continue his rampage. But there was one large problem. 
Due to Saudi regulations, Michael could only acquire the proper work visa from a consulate in his country of citizenship. This meant that before he could travel to the Middle East, he would have to make a last stop in the US. Michael Swango was likely aware of the enormous risk in returning to America. The FBI warrant for his arrest was still active, and if he got anywhere near the border, he would likely be caught. But Michael was apparently desperate to secure his new job in Saudi Arabia and the opportunity to kill again. So, he took his chances. In June of 1997, 42-year-old Michael Swango traveled back to the United States using his real name and passport. His documents were flagged at immigration and he was immediately apprehended. Astonishingly, after years of successfully evading capture, Michael had essentially handed himself over. Whether it was from lack of judgment or underestimation of risk, Michael found himself in FBI custody. But an arrest is far from a conviction. The authorities were all but certain that Dr. Michael Swango was a serial killer. However, the only crimes they could prove were that he made false statements to gain admittance to a federal institution and that he fraudulently accessed and distributed controlled substances. They once again slapped Michael with the lesser charges. Michael sighed in relief. He could survive another short stint in prison. So, rather than face a lengthy trial that could potentially reveal his more sinister crimes, he pled guilty to the fraud and controlled substances charges. In June 1998, Michael Swango was sentenced to a mere 42 months in prison. Michael may have thought it was over, but the FBI wasn't done with him. They knew he was a killer and set out to prove it. With Michael temporarily behind bars, authorities commenced an international investigation. Bodies of alleged victims from both New York and Zimbabwe were exhumed for clues. The US conducted lab tests as Zimbabwe gathered eyewitness testimony from Michael's surviving victims. As each country scurried to build a case, the days of Michael's sentence ticked away. If they couldn't find proof before he was released, they were sure he would kill again. Unfortunately, they had even less time than expected. Due to good behavior and previous time served, Michael was scheduled to be released early on July 15, 2000, about two years after his incarceration. It was an all-out race against the clock. Working closely with the Zimbabwean government, the FBI painstakingly built what author James B. Stewart called an overwhelming amount of consistent, circumstantial evidence from numerous possible victims from multiple hospitals and locations. But the biggest revelation of all was the discovery of epinephrine and succinylcholine in the organs of three exhumed bodies. Like epinephrine, succinylcholine is readily available in hospitals. It's considered to be the neuromuscular blocker of choice because of its rapid onset and short duration of action. At high enough doses, both of these medications could be used to kill even the healthiest of patients. An overdose of epinephrine may lead to death from dangerously high blood pressure, stroke, or arrhythmia. A succinylcholine overdose, on the other hand, can lead to fatal respiratory depression. In the spring of 2000, a grand jury convened for Michael Swango's murder case. On July 11th, just four days before his scheduled release, 45-year-old Michael was charged with three counts of murder in the US. At the same time, the government of Zimbabwe charged him with five other counts. With the writing on the wall, Michael finally accepted his fate. He pled guilty to his American charges. The judge slammed him with three consecutive life sentences and no possibility 
of parole. Long overdue, Dr. Swango's evils were finally punished. Michael Swango's story is both terrifying and frustrating. His diabolical career is filled with many unanswered questions and even more rumors. To this day, there is no clear motive other than a twisted, obsessive desire to kill. While the exact number of his victims is unknown, he's estimated to have murdered close to 60 people. If accurate, Michael Swango's death toll would eclipse that of the Zodiac Killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, and even Ted Bundy. If he hadn't made the foolish decision to return to the United States, who knows how many more victims the prolific poisoner would have claimed. Michael Swango was doomed by his own dark compulsions. It seems like killing was the only thing in life that really mattered to him, and it was something he was all too willing to jeopardize his freedom over. With the risks he was taking, it's hard to believe he wasn't stopped earlier. Michael Swango was also someone who had the deadly combination of intelligence, arrogance, and a lack of empathy. Although he had all the potential in the world, he unfortunately chose to take advantage of his brains and charisma to inflict evil. Swango's story exposes the limits of the justice system. Without hard evidence, law enforcement can only do so much. When given a second chance, some offenders choose to resume their malevolent ways. And in the case of Dr. Michael Swango, no amount of rehabilitation could ever cure the wickedness coursing through his veins. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alistair. For more information on Michael, among the many sources we used, we found Blind Eye, the terrifying story of a doctor who got away with murder by James B. Stewart, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.